We're in this series called Being Mortal, and today we're going to talk about death and dying and grieving and end-of-life tasks. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> How many people were here last week? Marcus Doe? So good, right? So great to hear from him. If you missed it, um, Marcus is a friend of ours who is a Liberian refugee who spoke last Sunday, and you can pull up the live stream recording of it, but he shared the story so powerful, you know, of losing both of his parents. Um, and he shared about his experiences with death and with dying and with grieving, and uh, such a powerful message. So pull that up if you weren't here last week. Um, we are going to enter this topic today on a much lesser note of loss. Uh, I want to start by talking about the death of a beloved pet, because I know many, many, many people have experienced that and are familiar with that loss. Um, I want to share with you the story um, that I wrote in this book, Wild Flock, about our losing our dog, Sam. I was never much of a dog person until we got our old English sheepdog. We named him Samwise Gamgee after Frodo's best friend since he was about to become our family's new best friend. Tim and I were living in Iowa and I was sad and resistant about being in a town that felt way, way too small for my ambitious 20-something-year-old heart. I traveled a lot for work and, flying, and I was flying in and out of Chicago, so we had Sam shipped to us. I didn't tell you this in the book, but Sam was a show dog reject. So he was like in training to be a show dog, didn't make the cut, and then we got him. So uh, he was a little older when we got him. Um, so we had Sam shipped from the breeder in Montana and picked him up in the cargo section of O'Hare International Airport after one of my work trips. I was instantly in love. That 70-pound fluffy puppy sat on my lap the whole three-hour drive home to our house that was located on the Mississippi River in Iowa. Sam settled gently into our lives during that tough season when our marriage was being tested in all sorts of new ways. Sam was a great comic relief for us in the midst of all the loneliness, tension, struggle, and tears of that season. Since that first day, Sam has been a constant presence and has moved with us eight times. He was there to welcome our son home from the hospital. He watched and comforted us through Russell's many firsts and our parenting firsts. From Sam, we learned about the value of play and companionship, rhythm, and routine. Over the last few months, we noticed Sam losing his energy and his ability to walk. We watched as he grew increasingly uncomfortable. We slowly and reluctantly recognized that Sam was dying. Earlier this week, we had to say goodbye to Sam. I don't know why I choose to read these things to you guys in church. <laughs> I cannot remember the last, the last time I cried this much. Um, even though his health had been declining for some time, nothing prepared us for saying goodbye to a dog that had become family. We miss him already. 
We're so grateful for the special years God gave us with our fluffy puppy. A friend shared this quote, which sums up one of the many gifts God gave us through Sam. Dogs are our link to paradise. They don't know evil or jealousy or discontent. To sit with a dog on a hillside on a glorious afternoon is to be back in Eden, where doing nothing was not boring, it was peace. Sam, we love you, and we are so glad God gave you to our family. You will be forever in our hearts. When C.S. Lewis lost his wife, Joy, to cancer, he found himself unprepared for the grief that followed. And later he wrote a book called A Grief Observed, and he said, nobody told me that grief feels so like fear. The feeling of being unprepared left him struggling with even deeper questions. He wrote this, meanwhile, where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Many people can identify with Lewis's experiences. He knew grief in the abstract, but he found his faith was reeling in the realities of grief. So how do we grieve in light of our faith, in light of resurrection? There are so many different reactions to death and to loss. And because we don't talk about these reactions very often, sometimes we experience them and we think something must be wrong with me because we don't talk about them very much. Some common reactions to death and loss are shock and numbness and sadness and longing, physical symptoms, depression, fear, anxiety. Sometimes there's guilt or self-reproach, feelings of loneliness, isolation, anger, avoiding the feelings altogether. There are also different phases of grief, and they're not linear. We can hop in and out of any of these at different times. Phases of grief include denial and isolation, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. There's also a continuum of styles of grief. In other words, people grieve differently. There's different styles of grief. So if you imagine like a long continuum, on one end you have like intuitive grief, and on the other you have instrumental grief. So intuitive grief is when we cry, when we weep. These are the pictures of grief we usually see. That's intuitive grief. Way on the other end of the spectrum would be instrumental grief. That is doing things to grief. Building something, making something, helping with all the funeral preparations. And because we grieve differently and there's different styles, different ways of grieving, sometimes we get sideways with each other in the face of grief and loss. If we don't understand that people grieve differently, that there's different styles. I mean, just because someone isn't crying, just because someone isn't weeping, that doesn't mean that they're not grieving. They may just have a more instrumental style. 
in his book, When Breath Becomes Air, the author was in his last year of medical school to be a neurosurgeon. And he talks about the moment, last year of medical school, all this work, last year, gets a cancer diagnosis. And it's serious. And this is what he says. At that moment, he says this, and with that diagnosis, the future I had imagined, the one that was just about to be realized, the culmination of decades of striving, evaporated. When all our plans, when all our striving evaporates, that is grief and loss. You know, the definition for grief is an acute pain that accompanies loss. It's the definition of grief. And when we're talking, um, in this series, we're talking about grief in the context of being mortal. But we grieve much more than death. I mean, we grieve when a friend moves across the country and we don't get to see them on a regular basis. We grieve when a marriage ends, whether it's our own or a friend's. We grieve infertility. We grieve when something we were dreaming about is no longer possible. We grieve all the time, all sorts of things, not just death. And in every grief, there's like a jumble of other griefs. Like when a loved one dies, not only do we grieve that they've died, but we grieve other things, like this jumble of other things. We, we just grieve, we miss the sound of their voice. We miss their companionship as we eat. We, we grieve the weddings and the births that we will now experience, but they will not. You know, I have a couple of friends who have lost their husbands. And grief is, right, there's no roadmap because this is complicated and unique for each person. Like, one friend said to me, I miss him, but I don't miss being married. That was her experience. And she said, I can't say that to very many people. Other person actually said almost like the opposite, you know? Like, I miss being married. I miss having someone in the house. I miss the presence of another person. But we didn't have a very good relationship. I don't actually miss him. I can't really say that. Grief is filled with all sorts of paradoxes. And, you know, just now, as I was reading you that story of uh, Sam dying, there was a part of me that wanted to just be like, peace out, I'm going to go in my office and have a good cry. And then there was another part of me that was like, no, Susie, keep it together because you've got to get through this sermon. <laughs> Two parts of me, right? Have you ever noticed that a toddler does not have that ability? Right? Like a toddler. When the toddler throws a tantrum, what we are seeing is a person who does not know how to disintegrate body and emotions. And it just, what they are feeling is going to come out in their body in the middle of Target to your dismay. Nothing you can do about it. They have no ability to separate what's going on in their feelings from their physical body. And then what, what do we do? We, we call it adulting, right? We teach them to separate. You know, a toddler having a tantrum is this and then for the sake of 
society working, we, we teach them to separate, right? Can't be having a tantrum in the middle of Target. To the point where, you know, usually you reach your teenage years and most people have the ability to say, like, sticks and stones may hurt your bones, but words will never hurt me, right? Like, so we have the experience then where we've actually learned to get experience rejection, have pain, but, like, keep a cool face about it. That didn't really hurt me. You can't really hurt me. What have we done? We've separated our emotions from our bodies. Toddlers don't know how to do that. Soren Kierkegaard said this, the most common form of despair is not being who you are. And we are very adept. We are quite skilled at not being who we are. One thing I've observed in listening to people's stories and just living as a human being myself in this world, we place a lot of shame on emotions. We hide our emotions, we stuff our emotions, we ignore our emotions, we numb from our emotions. We especially love to criticize emotions. We're so hard on ourselves. You shouldn't feel that way. We're critical of our own emotions and we're critical of the emotions of others. We think sometimes, you know, like, if I could just control my emotions, all would be well. Problem would be solved. We say things like, you know, don't listen to your feelings because they're always going to lead you astray. You really shouldn't feel that way. Having feelings, that makes you weak, makes you look weak. So as a culture, we're often guilty of just denying grief. In fact, the, this is so interesting to me. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual on Mental Disorders defines normal grief over the loss of a spouse as two months. What? Two months. So it says that after, after that, severe sy symptoms like fatigue, feelings of worthlessness, diminished concentration can be considered abnormal grief. It says for other types of grief, like loss of a job or a divorce, the normal period of grieving, two weeks. Like that's barely a vacation's time to grieve. And it doesn't take much biblical study. We don't have to look very far into the scriptures to see that God has created us as emotional beings and values our emotions. When I think about deep feelers in the Bible, like I can't help but think about King David and all the Psalms that he wrote. I mean, he would cry out to God with intense emotions. He would say things like, my heart is trembling inside my chest as the terror of death seizes me. Fear and dread overwhelm me. I shudder before the horror I face. I say to myself, if only I could fly away from all of this. If only I could run away to the place of rest and peace big emotions. In this series, we're looking at a passage in scripture about the ra Jesus raising Lazarus. And in this passage, we see that not only does King David value emotions, Jesus himself valued human emotions. In John 11, we read this. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. 
When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he, who opened the eyes of the blind man, have kept this man from dying? This story in the Bible is a comforting reminder of the value that Jesus places on our emotions. Like Jesus' response here in this story reveals the value that he places that Christ places on human emotion. So it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept when he sees that Lazarus is dead. Jesus, think about this. Jesus absolutely knew what was about to happen. Like he knew that even though his friend was, had died, that he would be raising him back to life in just a few moments. And yet, don't miss this, he still wept. He knew he'd be raising him back to life momentarily, but Jesus still wept. Jesus honored and entered into the present experience of grief that his friends were having. Like they had just lost their dear brother. Of course they're weeping, but Jesus didn't shame them. He didn't rush them right along. He didn't remind them like, hey, everything happens for a reason. You know, he did not quickly bombard them with words of hope. What did he do? Jesus wept. He validated their humanity. And when Jesus lamented with his friends, he was allowing them, he was giving them permission to process their emotions. Here's the thing about emotions. Unprocessed emotions actually become trauma in the body. Many of you are familiar with that famous book, The Body Keeps the Score. It just talks about how we experience stress in life because of circumstances, and sometimes those circumstances are resolved. We're not in those circumstances anymore, but the stress still remains in our bodies. Unprocessed emotions can result in trauma in the body. So that book just does all these different studies, but you know, famous one is just someone is in war, and then they return from war. They're no longer in the stressful situation. But the body keeps the score, right? It remembers. Which is why, you know, moving physically, like getting our heartbeats up, exercising 20 to 30 minutes a day, like it's not just good for us physically. It actually completes the stress cycle. Because war might seem like an extreme example, but you and I experience stress every single day. And often what happens is, we're in a stressful situation at work. We come home, we're no longer in that stressful situation, and we think, over. No, it's still in my body. Like, my body needs to complete the loop. Jesus weeping is like honoring the humanity of the people present. Like Jesus knows how God's created us. He knows our neurobiological pathways. He knows our bodies. He knows how stress remains in the body. And he knows the importance of honoring those emotions so that they don't turn into trauma in our lives. Barbara Brown Taylor says this, sadness, that doesn't sink a person. It is the energy 
a person spends trying to avoid sadness that does that. Jesus wept. He allowed his body to work out the sadness inside. Being mortal requires this, and Jesus knew that. Notice that Jesus, God in the flesh, immortal God becoming mortal, does not rush them along. He provides empathy and patience, and that is a model to us to pay compassionate attention to our own emotions. It might sound strange, but Jesus is weeping. It's like one of the best verses in all of Scripture because it is a picture of the heart of God. Jesus is showing us, like, this is what it looks like to be most human, and it's not with a stiff upper lip. God is holding, in this story, Jesus weeping. It is showing us that God holds in his hands, like in one hand, the redemption story, the hope of resurrection. And in the other hand, he holds the fragility of human emotion, and he loves both of them. So Jesus is showing us embodied people who are not disintegrated but whole, embodied people who are alive, who have not learned to separate. They have emotions, and they embrace those emotions because we need the information that those emotions give us. Peter Scazzaro, in his excellent book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, says this, to feel is to be human. To minimize or deny what we feel is a distortion of what it means to be image bearers of our personal God. To the degree that we're unable to express our emotions, we remain impaired in our ability to love God, others, and ourselves well. I took a class a couple years ago about aging and dying, and the instructor pointed out that there is a process to dying. We don't, all, we don't very often talk about this, but that there is a process to dying. Um, of course, death does not always follow this process. But there are some pieces of the process that often appear at the end of life. For example, one to three months prior to death, often a person will begin to withdraw. They'll begin stepping back. Their bodies physically will not need as much food. It's part of the process of dying. One to two weeks prior to death, there can be a disorientation. There can be physical changes in pulse and heart rate. Again, with food. One to two days or hours prior to death. Sometimes you see a surge of energy in a person or a restlessness. Sometimes we see a person, uh, you know, who's basically been asleep, all of a sudden wake up and start making phone calls or talking or saying things. And people around them sometimes think like, oh, they're making a comeback. When actually this surge of energy sometimes is a part of the process of dying. Because there are some end-of-life tasks, perhaps, that the person needs to do. End-of-life tasks include things like a sense of completion with worldly affairs, a sense of completion in relationship with community, friends and family, sense of meaning about one's life, 
and experience of love for self and for others, they're all end-of-life tasks. Acceptance of the finality of life, a sense of meaning about life in general, and in the end, there is a final letting go. In the end, there is a final surrender that must take place. And sometimes we see a person hanging on to life because there are some more end-of-life tasks that have not been completed. Most of these have to do with some version of letting go. Of course, there are many times when life is taken from someone suddenly and they don't get to do these end-of-life tasks. Absolutely. And at the same time, we can all be learning to do these tasks along the way of life. So that even if we die suddenly, we've actually been practicing letting go along the way. Like usually when we think about the pattern of life, often we think like we live and then we die. Except followers of God in the way of Jesus, we're following a God who has actually said, we die that we might live. Right? The pattern for followers of Christ is actually reversed. The movement is from death to life. So Jesus would say things like, you must lose your life to find it. This movement from death to life, like that's the pattern that Jesus encourages. Because here's the thing, in the end, ultimately, we will let go of all other hopes and trust in God alone. It's not just at the end that we learn to let go. It's something we're doing all throughout life. You know, we often will talk about uh, grieving like it's just a, sh a season. Like, oh yeah, they lost someone, they're in a season of grieving. You know, really, we are all grieving all the time. Little things and big things. I mean, every single day when you put your head on the pillow at night, you are letting go of a day that you will never get to live again. So the question becomes, how am I letting go? Because regret and worry, those are forms of control. How am I doing with letting go, even of something as simple as this day, at the end of this day, that I can never relive this day? We can do all, uh, we can do these tasks of letting go because of the hope of the resurrection. I mean, after hearing Lazarus has been dead for four days, Jesus says to Martha these words, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. See, what Jesus is saying is that death, it's just a doorway what he's saying is you can begin living life that is really life. Now, you can begin a relationship with God now that lasts into eternity. It starts now. It lasts into eternity. And death, that's just a doorway into the life that is without any sin, any shame, any pain, 
any tears. But we're beginning it now. Because Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. See, everything in life, it's always changing. God is the only one who is unchanging. So we're practicing letting go every time we experience even a small loss, like the end of the day, can't have it back again, or big losses. We're practicing letting go. We're doing these tasks of dying by clinging to our ultimate hope, by clinging to our unchanging God in the midst of all the changes and losses that we experience in being mortal. So in one hand, we hold the fragility of human emotions, we hold death. And in the other hand, we hold the hope of resurrection. After the death of her father, uh, the artist, whose name is Mary Andrew, she provided a series of illustrations on her Instagram page, illustrations of grief. And uh, she was working through the pain of losing her father. And in one particular illustration, she drew this as a picture of grief. A heavy sack moving to a small pocketbook. And this is what she said of her own experience with losing her father. She said, grief doesn't ever go away, but it does change shape. And it becomes something you can hold rather than something that overwhelms you, a part of you rather than a burden. There's so much confusion in our world right now about the role of a pastor. But in the old days, it was actually very simple. In the old days, the role of a pastor was to help prepare people to die. Americans are said to be dying badly, and I don't want us to die badly. In loss, we learn to let go without leaving this earth. With every loss we face, we're learning to let go while remaining on this earth. And those losses and how we navigate them, they're preparing us for the day that will come for every one of us when we let go and leave this earth. So with each loss, we're learning to let go while remaining on this earth. But all of that is preparing us for the day when we let go and we leave this earth. You know, last weekend, I, I, was, I met my siblings in San Antonio to celebrate my dad's 80th birthday. And I'm one of four, so there were six of us, just my immediate family, celebrating my dad's 80th birthday, super fun, just a in very incredible time. And I can uh, count, I can remember two times that my dad cried when I was growing up. In all my years growing up, I can only think of two times he cried. But last weekend, we were together for like 48 hours in San Antonio. And there were a couple different times right within that period that my dad cried. And I imagine when my dad was a toddler, he probably was like this 
like his emotions and his body matched. I'm sure he threw tantrums like every child does. You know, and then along the way, you learn to disintegrate, to pull those apart. And my dad is certainly not perfect, but here's what I feel like I am witness to as he is in the process of aging. He's nearing the end of life. What I am observing, what I feel like I'm witnessing is like a coming back together, which is what happens when people do their work. That there's a reintegration. So last weekend, we were just like sitting around and talking, and all of a sudden, my dad would get like sentimental and kind of this otherworldly phase, and he'd be like, I just have such a special family. You know, he'd get all choked up, and it's like, coming back together. Dallas Willard said this, those who have attained considerable spiritual stature are frequently noted for their childlikeness. What this really means is that they do not use their face and body to hide their spiritual reality. In their body, they are genuinely present to those around them. This is a great spiritual attainment or gift. Americans are said to be dying badly, clinging to youth, clinging to beauty, clinging to power, unable to let go gracefully as they age and at the end. And I think we only need to look around to the people who are not fighting aging at every turn, instead realizing the first half of life necessarily is about building an ego, but the second half, second half of life, that's about an inner journey. That's about coming back together. That's about learning to let go while remaining on this earth. All of that second half is preparatory for that ultimate letting go that we will all experience. This is what it means to be mortal, to die well, and all of us are going to face the end, and in the end, we will all let go. And our best preparation for that is the practice of actually dying along the way, learning to let go and surrender and to cling to the one who will be with us at the end, to cling to the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Clinging to the one sure presence who has promised to be always with us. This is the inner work of being mortal. And Jesus has shown us the way. Let's pray together as we close. God, I thank you for this Eucharist way of life you invite us into, that as we come to the table now, 
and we see that the bread is taken and blessed and broken and given for the healing of the world, that you too, Jesus, were taken and blessed and broken and given for the healing of the world. And I pray that you would show us how to follow you in this Eucharist way of life. Thank you that no matter what we face, if we are present, ultimately and always we discover the presence of you with us in that place. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Amen.